from the Alaska Airlines Studio. Presented by 2020lifestyles.com. This is The Blitz. The first look at the top stories in Seattle sports. They don't make them like us. We're not like everybody else. The rundown on everything Seattle sports on your way to work. Swing a five ball. Deep right center field. He did it again. And the stories everyone is talking about. This is the Blitz at Six. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Blitz at Six. Lydia Cruz alongside with you. Friday, June 19th. Juneteenth, which we'll discuss here in a moment. Also ahead in this hour, Major League Baseball, the Players Association, uploading a new game proposal, 70-game regular schedule. And it was a plan that was immediately rejected by Rob, Rob Manford and the owners yesterday. Reports that some of them felt insulted by it. Again, baseball can't get out of its own way right now. New York Jets safety Jamal Adams, he's been vocally frustrated with his team over contract negotiations and according to ESPN, has told his team he wants to be traded. According to Adam Schefter, he named seven teams that he would welcome that, including the Seattle Seahawks. Could he, would he fit here in Seattle? We'll discuss ahead. Also, yesterday we heard from... Dr. Anthony Fauci, that the NFL season might not be possible. More information on that, as well as how the NFL is preparing for a potential second wave of coronavirus. It's all ahead in this hour right now. Let's get to your headlines. Today is June 19th, also known as Juneteenth. Juneteenth celebrates the commemoration of the end of slavery in the United States. On June 19th, 1865, Union soldiers arrived in Galveston, Texas, with news that the war had ended and that the enslaved were now free two years after President Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation ended slavery formally on January 1st, 1863. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell announced recently the NFL would formally observe Juneteenth and multiple NFL teams established June 19th as a permanent company holiday moving forward. The NBA also has given employees paid time off for Juneteenth for the first time in league history, according to ESPN, and several teams formally recognizing it and honoring it in some fashion as well. The Wizards and the Washington Mystics expected to walk from the Capital One Arena in D.C. to the MLK Junior Memorial this morning. So just want to honor that important day before we even get started here. Speaking of the NFL and their concerns over COVID-19 and the return, we heard from Dr. Anthony Fauci yesterday on CNN and Sanjay Gupta reporting this story that he told him the NFL season might not be possible. Here was that report. And I talked to Dr. Fauci, he asked specifically about football because obviously a later season. i show you a little bit of what he said. Uh, you know, he, he obviously has concerns, but but bringing up this idea that in order for this to work properly, in order for a team to be able to do this, players would essentially have to be inside a bubble, not really having significant interaction from the community. They need to be tested nearly every day. And it would be hard to see how football, he said, would able to be played, you know, given that there's likely going to be a, a second wave and a predictable flu season. If you start to add in all these various things, you can see the last line there. Football may not happen this year. 
So that was a topic of discussion, reasonably so, yesterday. NFL's chief medical officer, Dr. Alan Stills, speaking on how they plan to mitigate COVID-19 risks in the NFL. Well, I think there are a number of things you can do on game day. First and foremost, again, is look at the layout of the field, how many people are on the field, how many people are exposed to each other, and, and can we actually distance some areas of the field and keep people apart? So we think that's important as a first step. Um, we're certainly looking at things about sterilization of equipment and, and, and everything, even down to the game balls and how we use that. And, and then I think you probably have heard in the media some, some reports that we are uh, looking with a, with a group of engineers very creatively at, at the possibility of some extended face shield mask type options that might be part of the football helmet. Because, um, again, we think there may be some things that we can do there. Um, to mitigate risk uh, from a respiratory standpoint. And, and then, of course, throughout all of this, you have to continue to emphasize things like good hand hygiene, hand washing, and, and avoiding touching contaminated surfaces. So we're really looking at the entire game day experience from who's present to what they do to what they touch and, and what the sterilization procedures are and looking at that through the lens of how can we mitigate risk. That's what this is all about is what can we do to reduce the risk for every single person that's involved in that, in that team environment, both on game day and, and outside the game day. A couple of uh, NFL players have tested positive for COVID-19. Some have come out and said so, including Vaughn Miller, but also recently some reports about Cowboys and Texans players testing positive. And NFL Chief Medical Officer Dr. Alan Stills on, on his not being surprised about these positive tests. It doesn't come as a surprise to us that there are new positive cases. I think uh, these, you know, th- th- this isn't the first wave of positive cases, and it probably won't be the last. And I think that just reflects the fact that this virus is still prevalent in our society. So as long as it's endemic in our society, we will have some new positive cases. And that's independent of how good our protocols are or how careful everyone is. So I think what we've learned is, again, it's all about how we respond. We want to identify those cases as quickly as possible. Uh, prevent spread and make sure that everyone that's in that player ecosystem, whether it's other players, coaches, medical staff, the club personnel, player families, we want to make sure we're taking all the appropriate measures to decrease their risk. So um, once our players are back in our facilities, we'll have a very robust and active testing program so that we can, again, identify those new cases as quickly as we can. So those are the positive tests. While everyone is still more or less self-quarantined, the, the season, off-season, is virtual as of now. But Dr. Sills, also on what happens if players or coaches test positive once they're all together? Well, that's an area that we're still really actively working on together with the NFL Players Association. We've also been in regular contact with the CDC, the White House Task Force, and other public health authorities because um, you're right that that's a crucial question for sports leagues to answer is how, how do you deal when there is a player who's positive or coach or someone who's exposed to others. And what we're trying to work towards is something that incorporates a what we would call a test-based strategy rather than simply an arbitrary time period of isolation, the concept that if we're testing really frequently, uh, is it possible to shorten that duration of, of isolation uh, from the rest of the team environment? So again, that's an area of a lot of work that's going into, but we're doing it in conjunction with public health authorities who are having to consider those, those types of situations, not only in professional sports, but in other areas as well. Dr. Fauci saying in that CNN interview that he really advised the NFL play in a bubble-like environment that the NBA and the MLS approach 
uh, is following, as well as the NHL, to a certain extent, they'll be playing in two bubbles of sorts, one for the East and one for the West, but these isolated campus-like environments. And uh, how about the NFL? They have said that they want to approach this uh, moving forward just as they would normally, but without fans is a likely possibility still with the travel schedule in place. And Diana Rossini, ESPN NFL insider on on the NFL considering playing in a bubble, but ultimately believing they don't need it. I do think we're so focused on when we're going to start. What's going to be really interesting is, you know, if there is going to be the second wave, and flu season, the way Dr. Fauci sort of is predicting here, that falls around the playoffs in the Super Bowl. So, what's that? How's that going to look? What if what if there's you know more cases that reveal themselves as the season goes on? So, um, I think we can all pretty much guarantee at this point the way the testing and uh, the, the way that the league handles this at the start, I bet you will not be the same. Um, as the season progresses, we're, they're going to have to adapt as, as I think we, the rest of the world has, right? And, and as we, we learn more and see how this is going to work. But right now, collectively, everyone is frustrated because they just don't have the answers to how this is going to work. Uh, this is Diana considering more saying that she doesn't believe or that the NFL doesn't believe a bubble is needed. The league also does not think that a bubble uh, would be practical or needed. They're really trying to push testing and education and and this has really been the tone the whole time in terms of how the league was going to approach this never was it ever spoken or at least said to me in conversations with sources with the league that they were going to move the season cancel the season all that was never even discussed should be said though that these plans we've known of anything from COVID-19 that plans can change uh, within a day, within a week. So uh, as of now, the NFL, according to ESPN, not considering that bubble-like environment, but might change here in uh, in the coming days. Up next on the Blitz, speaking of changes day to day, Major League Baseball and the Players Association look like they might make progress this week. But apparently the new players proposal, a 70 game regular season schedule proposal yesterday, uh, was immediately rejected by MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred and the owners. I'll explain why it's next on the Blitz right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. You're listening to The Blitz from the Alaska Airlines Studio. Welcome back to The Blitz at 6. Lydia Cruz alongside with you Friday, June 19th. Thanks for hanging out this morning. We made it to Friday. It's happening. Also, some really nice weather in the Seattle area yesterday. Went out and played catch because you can socially distance and still play catch because I miss baseball like many baseball fans out there. So what is the latest in the negotiations between the players and the owners. On Thursday, the Players Association sent the owners a new proposal, this time for a 70-game regular season schedule. The plan was immediately and emphatically rejected by MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred, according to reports. According to ESPN's Jeff Passan, the details in this proposal included when it comes to the schedule-wise, 70 games from July 19th through September 30th, spring training to begin June 26th through the 28th, expanded playoffs to 16 teams in 2020 and 2021. As for the financial aspects, which have been a huge sticking point, the biggest sticking point 
full prorated pay, uh, minimum pool for playoff shares in 2020 based on rounds played, $50 million if full playoff is staged, a 50-50 split of incremental TV revenue for any additional postseason games in 2021, and then the $10 million for social justice initiatives, uh, as was proposed earlier this week. Uh, other things include on this proposal uh, full service and salary for players who are high risk and those who live with high in, high risk individuals through the COVID-19 pandemic. Also, clubs would be granted permission to sell advertisements on uniforms for the next two years. The universal designated hitter the next two years as well. And then the parties would work together to collaborate on broadcast enhancements. And that's a common theme we've been seeing as well in terms of uh, whether it's mic'd up players or in-game interviews but to really enhance that component because without fans in the stands, that will be necessary. Uh, There's a mutual waiver also of potential grievances under the March agreement, which is something that owners had wanted uh, to see. Following a four-hour negotiation in Phoenix between Clark and Manfred on Tuesday, MLB emerged believing that they had a framework in place of a deal that would be agreed upon. MLB's proposal on Wednesday, the league's fourth offer now, included a 60-game schedule and full pro-rated salaries. Tim Kirkchen on Rob Manfred walking out believing they had a deal. That Rob Manfred walked out of that meeting saying, we're going to get this done at 60 games, 100 percent prorated contracts and the union said no and now the distrust and the anger has built again and it's really hard to do a deal for this much money when there's this much distrust manfred has been pretty vocal so has clark commenting on these negotiations and manfred saying of that meeting quote we had a list of issues we stated position positions on each of those issues we then made trades and compromises across and within those issues and uh, said also, we shook hands. We both agreed we were going to push was the word, push our sides to reach an agreement consistent with that framework. Jesse Rogers, ESPN MLB reporter on the owners thinking they had a deal. The owners are really mad. They're really mad. Manfred came out of that meeting, went back to them. I'm told it was a, uh, him and Clark went over 14 different points of a framework for an agreement, shook hands on it. But Clark went back and his lead negotiator, uh, maybe a lead agent, and certainly then the players said, no, 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 we're not going to agree to 60 games. I mean, he could implement 54 or whatever it is, and we can sue him. What's 60 get us? So that's why they're really mad. I mean, Manfred has negotiated a long time, and I'm, I believe him when he thinks he thinks he left the room with an agreement. Again, I'm not taking sides. I don't know. But I, I, I think Manfred truly believed that and told the owners that. And they are just ticked off. They feel like they're being played a little bit. Like, hey, we finally came to an agreement, and now you're backing out of it and and, uh, coming back with 10 more games and more playoff money and all this stuff. The union disagreed with that accounting of the story, and players Wednesday said they viewed MLB's proposed 60-game schedule as too short for them. Clark also making statements, including, quote, it is unequivocally false to suggest that any tentative agreement or other agreement was reached in that meeting. In fact, in conversations within the last 24 hours, Rob invited a counterproposal for more games that he would take back to the owners. We submitted that counterproposal Today, that was their reasoning behind the 70-game schedule. Jeff Passan on why the last deal was rejected by the players. If Rob Manfred's going to impose a season and set a schedule, which he has the right to do under their March 26th agreement, it's probably going to be for around 50 games. Um, This deal that uh, Major League Baseball thought they had was going to be for 60 games. 
and it was going to include an expanded postseason, which is television money going to the league. And it was going to include other, you know, inducements, you know, mic'd up players, things like that. But really the TV money is the, the big part of it. And I think the, the players felt like 10 extra games of pay, which is around $250 million, the universal DH, and the loss of the ability to file a grievance, which could be worth a lot more than the $250 million, was just not worth trading expanded playoffs. Like, they felt like they could get a better deal out of it. And they felt like they were in a position of strength and that when it's all said and done, they felt like Major League Baseball is not going to lose out on a longer and better season because of what amounts to, what, five games now? So after they had that meeting face-to-face, Manfred saying that Clark called him that evening, said he was not going to present the framework to the union's eight-man executive subcommittee and at the time still was talking about more games. Manfred responding saying, Quote, I told him 70 games was simply impossible given the calendar and the public health situation, and he went ahead and made that proposal anyway. Both MLB and the union proposed starting the season on July 19th, something they have in common, but the players' proposal would end this season three days later than that. And Rob Manfred saying, we told them we're not playing doubleheaders. Our public health guys tell us you should not put people together for that number of hours in the day. It's not safe, but they just keep ignoring those things. The league, of course, still has the ultimate ability to implement a season of its desired length, probably around 50 games per that March 26th agreement between the sides. But that would still spark or could still spark a grievance from the players. Rob Manfred saying, this needs to be over. Yes, many of us agree, right? We want baseball back and uh, days of our lives here, days of our deal uh, continuing on. Jesse Rogers also saying, even if the players win at this point, they're losing. Even when the players win, so to speak, getting 65, maybe 70, they're still losing. This is what the owners have done now. They've kind of created this situation where they've dragged their feet the first offer really ticked off the union, dividing the players with that sliding paying scale and dragged their feet. Time is start, And now all of a sudden we're debating 60 and 70 games instead of 90 or 100. So the owners are winning in this whole debate. It's just a matter of how much they're going to win. Is it going to be 50 games, 60 games or 65 games, right? Or maybe 70 if they if they just you know fall apart and give in. So. Either way, it's still not a great deal for the players in their minds. They're making, you know, little 30%, 35% of their salary when they could be in camp now in their minds and playing many, many more games. Coming up on the Blitz, well, still to come later in the hour, Jamal Adams making it clear that he wants out of New York because contract negotiations not going well with his team and one of the teams that he requested a trade to is the Seattle Seahawks. How would he fit here? That's later in the hour, but first up next on the Blitz, Brian Baldinger joining Bob David Moore yesterday. Some great stuff, bringing Baldy's breakdowns to 710 ESPN Seattle. Don't miss it. It's next on the Blitz right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. From the Alaska Airlines studio, this is The Blitz. Welcome back to The Blitz at 6. Lydia Cruz alongside with you, hanging out Friday, June 19th. Thanks for being here. Happy Friday, my friends. Brian Baldinger of the NFL Network taking some time to join Bob, Dave, and more yesterday. I uh, always appreciate Ron Baldy's breakdowns and all of his coverage. And he had some thoughts on Jadevian Clowney and his fit in Seattle. Hey, quickly, I know you, you did a breakdown, uh, Baldy's breakdowns, which are fantastic. 
You did one on on uh, Jadevian Clowney, which is obviously has been a huge talking point out here. He has not yet signed with anybody. Everybody's speculating on what he wants and where he wants to play. And I don't know if you have any feelings about that, but just just him as a player. There's debate about a guy who had three sacks. Yet you talk to every player that's either played against him or watched him play, and from their expert eyes, say, "Man, this guy's a disruptor. This guy, this guy is an extra meeting guy." What What is your take of Jadevian Clowney and what you think he's worth? I love him. I mean, I love the person. I mean, I, I I remember talking to him before Seattle's second game in Pittsburgh last year. You know, he had, you know he'd just gotten there. I mean, he was just he never had he had no off season. He had no training camp. He wasn't in great football shape. And then he's trying to learn, you know, Ken Norton, you know, junior system, and you know what Pete wants to do, and he's trying to fit in, and you know, it took a while. Um, you know, and then he was kind of banged up a little bit. I mean, it just, you know, it wasn't a great year for him, you know, statistically. But look, in the in the first victory against San Francisco in overtime, he was, which basically almost swung the entire balance of power in the NFC West. I mean, he was the best player in the football field that night. I mean, he was just a dominant, dominant player, playing a lot of snaps and just giving the 49ers fits. And he can do that. And he can do that. I mean, he changed the game in Philadelphia in a playoff game. With uh, you know, with what he did to Carson Wentz, I mean, he could change the game. I mean, he is he is the ultimate disruptor. You have to learn how to kind of play with him and how to utilize him. But physically, there's just not many players in the league that can do the things he does. Well, what about the consistency and and uh, the issues with injuries, that type of thing, Brian? Because uh, something is preventing uh, him from getting the payday that he was seeking. Well, yeah, I mean, look, I mean, everybody's just looking at the numbers from last year, and they weren't ready to give him, you know, one of these contracts that a few defensive linemen, Aaron Donald, Fletcher Cox, a few guys in the league have commanded. And so they're leery. I mean, you know, he's, he's if he plays this year, it's going to have to basically play a one-year deal and to play himself into a big contract. Other guys have done it. That's where he's at right now. And part of it is his own doing. I mean, part of it is his body. Um, you know, but, you know, he needs to go out and play 16 games and, and, and dominate to his ability, which is considerable. There's just not many guys like him out there. He's not a great He's not a great one-on-one pass rusher. He's not Chandler Jones with an array of moves. He's very powerful. He's better when you move him around like the way the Packers did Zadarius Smith uh, a year ago. And if you can create a, a scheme like that, he can really disrupt and he can change the way you play offense. Brian, what are your thoughts on total sacks from a defense? You know, those Hawks were near the bottom, if not the bottom in the NFL last year. In 2013, I believe they weren't um, high up as far as numbers, but still had a pretty good season. What are your thoughts about the defense and sack numbers? Do they need to have a high number of sacks, or can they win in other ways? Well, I mean, it was the worst defense Seattle's had in a long time. You know, I mean, it, it goes a long ways to how your secondary covers and takeaways. I mean, the Pittsburgh Steelers led the league in sacks. They also led the league in takeaways last year on a team that had no offense. So, I mean, the Seattle Seahawks, you know, uh, went five straight years and gave up the fewest points to the league five straight years in a row. And you could say that the Legion of Boom, as good as they were, were benefited by Cliff Averill and Michael Bennett and the guys they had up front and the amount of pressure that they applied. There is a direct correlation between playing great defense, not necessarily always sacks, but pressuring the quarterback. And that, you know, that leads to sacks and, and poor decisions by the quarterback. 
Brian Baldinger of NFL Network. If you don't already follow him online, Baldy's Breakdowns, uh, one of my highlights of, of my timeline. Yesterday, Jerry DePoto also joining Danny and Gallant for the Jerry DePoto Show yesterday to talk about this unique time in baseball. Is this kind of a hurry up and wait situation as, as, as you hope we're going to be getting ready to play baseball soon, but still waiting on the on the final word of when and if that'll happen? You know, I mean, honestly, we're in a very similar position, if not the same, uh, to everyone else who's who's following it, especially these last few days. And, you know, you can't help but feel some optimism after such a, a rough month or so that preceded it. But we've been prepared to, to push go, I guess, from from the time this started and how we've stayed in contact with the players, the way the players have taken care of or prepared themselves. And, and you know, a couple of weeks back when we spoke and we were able to allow small groups of players in, in Peoria, and that's gone well. There's a, there are quite a few players down there who are up to game speed, you know, pitchers throwing live batting practice in the, in the low mid nineties and, and hitters in there taking live swings and, and working out fairly regularly. So we feel like we're ready to go. A week ago, baseball said that they wanted teams to find taxi squad sites. Have you guys determined which one you will use and could that taxi squad potentially be the way that you guys can give young players like Jared Kelnick or a Logan Gilbert experience this coming season? Yeah. On the latter part, that's very likely, you know, guys like Gilbert, like Kelnick, and even some that haven't advanced quite as far through the system are, are very likely to make our taxi squad because we're really intent on making sure that a lot of those good young players get their reps, at least as many as we can uh, squeeze into that without putting the big league clubs depth in a, in a difficult spot. And we have, we've reached out to, to our local partners here and, you know, obviously looking for a second site. uh, One of the criteria we've discussed is that it needs to be, within driving distance, you know, an hour's drive or thereabouts from the the home base. And we're going to need to, to be able to, to work 15, 20 players at that spot. Some of that's going to really be contingent on what happens with the minor league season, which right now we're assuming is not going to happen. Uh, therefore, we may be able to slide in down into Colma with our affiliate there. But, you know, there's still some, I, I guess, life support to the idea there might be an abbreviated minor league schedule. Uh, and, and hopefully we can salvage some of, of the reps that we've lost there. Jerry, um, the relationship between the players and the league has get, been getting a lot of attention. But what's the relationship between the coaches and the players during this whole thing? thing? Do they see you as part of them or part of the league? Like, where do you guys stand in this? I think just like we've always seen each other, you know, the, the players, they, they have the right to fight for whatever it is they're looking for as far as work conditions, et cetera. But, you know, they, they treat our coaches like they always have, which is, you know, respectfully. And we've got a group down, as I said, in Peoria working live. And, and then what we're doing virtually with the guys who aren't down in Arizona, where they still get their touch-ins from strength coaches, coaches, managers, et cetera. And, and it's uh, as normal as it's been, you know, based on whatever this normal is that we're dealing with today. We're talking to Jerry Depoto. Jerry, we had a we had a conversation last segment about about best overall athletes that we've seen, and kind of it 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 came off of an observation from an NBA player about LeBron James, 
and we were we were talking about great multi-sport athletes that we've seen. I've always been curious about the role athleticism plays in in baseball. And you're probably a perfect person to talk to it, not only with the player's background, but scouting it. How how big a role is a player's overall athleticism in, in determining sort of the, the ceiling that they have as a player? I think it's huge, uh, especially with the, the everyday, the position players. It's, you know, it's, it is roughly the first thing we're trying to determine when scouting a player is the degree of, of athleticism that that player possesses. And, and even with our, our pitchers, you know, athletic deliveries, free movers, guys who are coordinated, you know, baseball is such a fine motor skills game that you, know, you can learn to play with average athleticism, but it's really tough to, to, to put yourself on the map with, with players at this level without being elite and in some way or another as far as athletic ability. And, and I think the, the, the best athletes I've ever seen on a baseball field are oftentimes those multi-sports athletes, you know, guys that, that played during my era, guys like Bo Jackson and Deion Sanders and Brian Jordan, just phenomenal athletes that, that could do a lot of different things that the other guys just couldn't. That was Jerry DePoto on Danny and Gallant. Full interview available, 710sports.com. Up next on The Blitz, it's time for the hot list. Frustrated with contract negotiations, New York Jets safety Jamal Adams wants out of New York City. And of the teams that he requested a trade to, the Seattle Seahawks landing on that list, could it make sense for him to come here? It's next in the hot list right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. You're listening to The Blitz from the Alaska Airlines Studio. It's time for The Hot List. Holy mackerel! The headlines for the day in sports every morning at 6.45. Heck yes! What are we missing here? A full breakdown of the top stories of today on your morning drive. Let's go! Baseball is definitely going through something at this point, so how about just a little piece of good news in the industry, the veteran Los Angeles slugger Albert Pujols is giving back to his team and his native Dominican Republic, according to the Los Angeles Times. He's going to be covering $180,000 in salary loss by staff members of the team in the Dominican who were furloughed because of the COVID-19 pandemic. The gesture will cover about five months salary for their employees, according to the report. Incredible. The Angels had announced last month that they would furlough non Playing employees across nearly every department of the organization beginning in June. And according to the Times report, the Angels Academy in Boca Chica was hit especially hard by the furloughs with close to 90% of employees. They're temporarily losing their wages. That led to Albert asking Angels general manager Billy Epler how he could help. And this pretty incredible now, making a, a huge donation there. Frustrated with his contract negotiations, New York Jets safety Jamal Adams has informed his ta- team, made it clear that he wants to be traded. According to Adam Schefter, Adams would welcome a trade to one of seven teams, including the Seattle Seahawks. Who else is on that list? The Ravens, the Cowboys, the Texans, the Chiefs, the Eagles, and the 49ers. Uh, taking a look at all of those teams in terms of where they stand on their cap situations and where they stand at that position, I think Narrowing it down, you can narrow it down to about three teams that would really make sense. The Dallas Cowboys, the 49ers, and the Seattle Seahawks. Uh, the Cowboys have expressed interest in Adams before. And, man, the 49ers, please. No, just not the NFC West. 
uh, against the Seahawks. The Jets, though, this is an important point, have no intention of trading him, according to sources. But Adams could try to force the issue with a training camp holdout. The trade demand comes after he hinted earlier on social media that he may want to be traded. Uh, He is upset with the team for dragging their heels on re-signing him. He signed through 2021, but made it clear he wants a new contract by the start of the regular season. Uh, Adam Schefter on what Adams is saying to the teams on his ideal trade list, including the Seahawks. Jamal Adams is sending an indirect message to these teams, hey, come and get me. I want to come play for you. And I'm sure that he would be willing to even put off a contract at that point in time if he can land on one of these teams. So he is making a public statement here that these are the teams that are out there. The Ravens, the Cowboys, Texans, Chiefs, Eagles, 49ers, Seahawks. A couple of teams in Texas, and a lot of playoff contenders that he'd like to go play for. And I think he's sending a message, hey, I want to go play for one of these teams. I would like for you to try to make it happen. Go call the Jets general manager, Joe Douglas, and see if you can find a way to bring me to your city. These are basically teams that many people would pick to go to the playoffs or they're back in Texas. Those are the teams he would like to go play for. And I think that when there's a team out there that knows that Jamal Adams wants to go play for that team, it makes it a little bit easier to pull up that deal knowing that he might be a little bit more flexible on getting a long-term contract done with that particular franchise. The Jets entertained offers for Adams at the trade deadline last fall. The Cowboys showing interest at the time. The Jets' asking price reportedly was a first-round pick and two second-rounders then. What kind of return can the Jets get or are they asking for? Could they ask for now? Well, certainly you have to get first-round picks. I mean, that that goes without saying. Uh, Reportedly, when they were entertaining offers at the trading deadline in October, they were looking for a one and two twos. Now, that's not going to happen now. The problem with the timing of this is the draft was two months ago. So, I mean, a first-round pick in 2021 is not going to help the Jets win games this year. So, for, for the Jets' purposes, if they do decide to trade him, then you've got to get something that can help you in this season. You know, get a quality player and a draft pick. To just come away with some draft picks and you lose a premier safety, then you're just hurting your organization, and that's not a smart thing to do. That was Rich Simony, who is the ESPN Jets reporter, commenting on what they're looking for. The Jets have him on team-friendly terms, $3.5 million this season, $9.9 million in 2021, the latter being the amount of his fifth-year option. Uh, Adams wants to become the NFL's highest-paid safety, according to sources, though, meaning he would like to eclipse the 14.6 per year that Eddie Jackson makes with Chicago. The highest paid safety in the league right now is Eddie Jackson of Chicago is $14.6 million a year. Jamal not only wants to go past that, but he wants to set a new bar that is significantly higher than that. I've been told by people uh, around the situation who they think Jamal wants to be the highest paid player on the Jets. Right now, that goes to C.J. Mosley, their middle linebacker, who makes $17 million a year. So is a safety worth $17 million a year? I don't think the Jets feel that he is worth that much money. Uh, Yeah, but really interesting. Could he be a fit here in Seattle? More of that discussion coming on Danny and Gallant. But still, again, narrowing it down to three teams, I think, reasonably in that mix. That would be the Seahawks, the 49ers, and the Cowboys. 
how the NFL will approach social justice issues and players utilizing their platforms for things that are important to them throughout the future. That's been a topic of conversation this offseason. We saw Roger Goodell come out with that video, responding to the players' video, admitting that the NFL has been wrong in the past in how they approached it and these peaceful demonstrations, nonviolent demonstrations for players speaking out on issues, particularly Colin Kaepernick uh, kneeling to protest police brutality, to protest protest racial inequality. J.C. Treder, NFLPA president, spoke yesterday on that video being the first of many necessary steps. It's a start, and, and I'm not going to I'm not going to scoff at the first action or the first step forward. Uh, but a lot needs to come after that, and, and we would love to to help in any any way of you know finding ways to fix the hiring practices that find uh, minority candidates unable to rise up the ranks in the NFL, finding ways to get minority individuals into ownership position, you know, outside of the world of just football, helping find places to put these donations and this money to use inside our local communities that can help people and society change. So it's a step in the right direction, but there are a lot more steps that need to come after that. J.C. Treader also on the NFLPA's role in dealing with today's issues. Our job as the union is to protect our players' rights. So that's why in, in 2018, when the NFL tried to unilaterally impose rules and restrictions on players making their voice heard. Uh, we filed a grievance to hold that those rules out and not allow them to implement those those rules. So that that's our first you know, job as you know being a union of players. I think the the really great thing that we've seen over the last month or so, three or four weeks, uh, I, I think guys are truly starting to understand the power of their platform. And understanding how how much uh, how much weight their voice carries, and, and you see the video put together by a lot of the stars of our league, and it prompts an immediate response. And I think guys are starting to understand that that we've gained these these platforms from playing the game of football, uh, but it's time to move past just sticking to sports and sticking to football. Someone I always love to hear from and appreciate hearing from is Sue Bird, a WNBA star, uh, Seattle Storm star, and she was on with Golick and Wingo because also she'll be hosting the ESPYs, which is pretty cool, um, talking about several different subjects, including the fact that there's no wrong answer. It mentioned using that platform right there for utilizing your platform. So there are major concerns about health. There are major concerns about like the social justice, the uprising that's occurring right now. Um, there are major concerns even about like being ready to play a season. What that means mentally, physically, um, injuries, that kind of stuff. All of these things are very real for all of us. And truthfully, I think this is one of those experiences where there's no wrong answer. How you feel is how you feel, and there's no wrong answer. I've had conversations with players that feel very similar to the Kyries and the Avery Bradleys. Um, by the way, I, you know, Avery Bradley's quotes most re- recently, <laughs> excuse me, I think hit on a different level. I mean, that reading those, it really puts it into perspective. It makes sense, right, for so many reasons. It's not just about not playing. It's, it's so much more than that. But then I've had conversations with people who are looking forward to playing, that that's an outlet for them that they're looking forward to being in, you know, this quote-unquote community to then, you know, use that and kind of have more of a powerful voice. Um, So again, I don't think there's a wrong answer. I think it's up to the individual. I think the NBA and the WNBA are different. I think us together is more powerful. Those guys have crazy platforms as it is. Um, There's a slight difference there in my opinion, but like I said, no wrong answer. Um, Everyone should do what they feel is right for them, their family, and so on. 
Suber. I'd always love hearing from her. If you get a chance, listen to that full interview on with Golick and Wingo this morning, I believe. So it'll be posted on ESPN's website. College football also trying to figure out the best way to approach this season. Heather Dinich, ESPN's college football senior writer on the higher-ups' opinions on the on-time start to play. Optimistic, but realistic, right? They know the virus is still there. Big 12 Commissioner Bob Bowlesby told me this week, he said he expects there to be a football season with interruptions. There will be some schools that will have outbreaks and will be able to contain them. Some will not, right? But I I do think that Scott Strickland of Florida, he said, prepare for everything, predict nothing. Anybody who tells you they know what's going to happen, they're lying. Prepare for everything, predict nothing. These things changing from day to day. Speaking of changing from day to day, Major League Baseball and the prognosis for 2020 seems to be changing every single day. Yesterday, uh, the Players Association sent the owners a new proposal, this time for a 70-game regular season schedule. Uh, The plan was immediately and emphatically rejected by MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred, according to reports. According to uh, ESPN's Jeff Passan, details in that proposal included the 70-game schedule, a spring training that would start on June 26, expanded playoffs to 16 teams for the next two seasons. It would also include fro- full prorated pay, a minimum pool for playoff shares in 2020 based on rounds played, and a 50-50 split of incremental TV revenue for any additional postseason games in 2021. Also, other things included would be the universal designated hitter the next two seasons, the right for clubs to sell advertisements on their uniforms for the next two seasons, and then maybe really important sticking point, a mutual waiver of potential grievances under the March agreement. But still, the amount of games is way too many, according to Rob Manfred, and that's something that they believed or he believed was off the table when they had that four-hour negotiation earlier this week, face-to-face negotiation in Arizona, and now they're back at what seems to be an impasse. Tim Kirchin on that. I really believe that Rob Manfred walked out of that meeting saying, we're going to get this done at 60 games, 100% prorated contracts, and the union said no. And now the distrust and the anger has built again, and it's really hard to do a deal for this much money when there's this much distrust. One of the quotes from Rob Manfred was, this needs to be over. And I think, yeah, everybody is feeling that right now. We want baseball back. And to stop uh, hearing and the airing of dirty laundry in public here between these two sides. Before we get out of here, just a reminder, today is June 19th, also known as Juneteenth. Celebrates the commemoration of the end of slavery in the United States. June 19th, 1865, Union soldiers arrived in Galveston, Texas with news that the war had ended and that the enslaved were now free two years after President Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation formally ended slavery on January 1st, 1863. So huge day and several of the sports leagues honoring that today. The NFL announcing they'll formally observe it. Uh, The NBA has given employees paid time off for Juneteenth for the first time in league history. And uh, just keeping that in mind moving forward throughout the weekend, because even though slavery was formally ended on this day, the fight for equality is still going on. And that's evident more now more than ever. So keep that in mind this weekend. Also, just a quick shout out to all the fathers out there as we head into the weekend celebrating Father's Day. Just thinking of you. That's a wrap for the Hot List and the entire Blitz at Six Hour. Danny and Gallant coming your way next right here on 710 ESPN Seattle.